Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen and I are speaking with The Economist, Diane Coyle, about the economics of lockdown, how we might measure its consequences, and what those long-term consequences might be. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics, writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. Helen and Diane are both separately in London. Hi, Helen. Hi, David. Hi, Diane. Hello. How's lockdown been for you, Diane? Well, it's been perfectly pleasant in some ways and immensely frustrating in others, which I'm sure is everybody's experience. Are you, uh, given that we might get on to talk about productivity, How's productivity? I'm finding it a struggle, I have to say. I don't feel like it's making us more productive. There seems to be a a lot more meetings. We're all becoming experts in all these uh, video conferencing platforms, obviously. Concentration. I found concentration really hard in the first couple of weeks, although it's improving now. Okay, that's good to know, because it hasn't for me yet. You'll get there. Uh, (laughs) Great. (laughs) So we're going to try and think about not just what lockdown means, but what the crisis as a whole means. But particularly how we might evaluate it and how we might think about some of the trade-offs we're often hearing about between economic outcomes, health outcomes, and more broadly, well-being, something that we've talked to you about in the past, the ways in which the economics profession should think about measuring our well-being. To start with, at this point, do you think we're learning things about how the economy works that we didn't know before? So we've got this kind of weird experiment many other things as well. We've put the economy in a deep freeze. Does that reveal any of its weak points or indeed surprising strengths that we didn't know it had? It's absolutely revealing weak points. I I think it depends who you mean by we, because things like the vulnerability of international supply chains to disruption, that's been flagged up by previous episodes, just not in quite the massive way that's happening at the moment. You know, for example, the tsunami in Japan or floods in Thailand, for particular industries, they led very rapidly to shortages of components in, in you know, the car industry or whatever. So people who looked at supply chains knew about that already. What's really shocked me, I suppose, is that there has been this body of knowledge about the vulnerabilities as well as the advantages, the efficiencies that come from organising production in this way. And none of that seems to have been common knowledge in political circles, in decision maker circles. So it's as if there's this expert insight that could have been planned for previously and nobody's been paying attention to it. So the longer the lockdown lasts, the more likely I think it is that those kinds of interruptions will become quite serious. They could start affecting food as well as other manufactured products and that would be pretty that would be pretty grim. For some developing countries, food shortages are already emerging. I guess the other weakness that's really been revealed is the existing inequalities in our societies and a sharp recession is going to make those even more evident. I think I agree and disagree. I mean, I think that 
so far with food supply chains, you could argue that actually, given what's been done to the economy, that they've in um, Europe and the United States, um, anyway, not obviously in some poorer countries, stood up remarkably well to what they've had to deal with. I mean, I think I certainly would have would have expected, and indeed did did expect, as the uh, the crisis first developed, that things would be worse than they are on that front. I think in terms of the bigger question about supply chains, I entirely agree with you, Diane, that we're going into a an economic and political world where things are not going to go back to what they were before. But I think that that world was already emerging anyway. Now, the last few years had in different ways politicised supply chains. They, they got politicised in the United States by Trump's approach to them, particularly when they involved China, and they got politicised in British politics around Brexit when supply chains and manufacturing supply chains were used as arguments as to why we had to remain as economically close as possible to to the European Union, stay in the in the customs union, etc. So I think that we're not so much getting a revelation about supply chains as something that had become part of politics is now deepened and become what will be the conflicts around it have become sharper. It's certainly playing into those kinds of conflicts, I think, but this is uh, very troubling to me. The collapse in trade already has been very substantial and you don't want to put too much weight on historical comparisons, but collapses in trade always have in the past have made recessions much worse. They amplify the downturn. And so, you know, although that political trend is not going to go away and actually has some validity to it because with outsourcing manufacturing, you're also losing a skills base and a resilience to your national economy. That's not going to go away, but I I would be quite worried if it if it went too far. And Diane, you said it depends, as it obviously does, on who we are here, who we're talking about. Has it revealed particular vulnerabilities of the UK economy? There's a focus at the moment, obviously, on different outcomes relative to policy choices about the health crisis. Um, and that's right at the front of people's minds. But even within the context of Europe or Europe and the United States, our economies are set up differently. They have different strengths and weaknesses. Is the UK potentially more vulnerable? And let's park Brexit for now. We might not be able to throughout, but more broadly, is the UK particularly vulnerable? Well, uh, we are very dependent on trade. So that's a, a special vulnerability. We do have these large inequalities and that goes across socio-demographic groups, but also it's got a geography to it, I think they're going to get exacerbated by the crisis. Communities, places that have advantages, these all go these all go together. We've just been looking at social capital with the strength of community ties and the support networks people have around them in the pandemic and all of the mutual aid groups that are springing up are in places that already have a lot of that social capital. So that's one example of the way that this inequality will will get amplified. The one thing that goes the other way, I guess, is that poorer parts of the UK are more dependent on public sector jobs, and they're the ones that are looking much more secure at the moment. So we don't quite know whether the the furlough scheme will ultimately translate into high unemployment. Um, that, That too will have its effects on inequality and geography. I think that what we can see in, in the British case as well is is that in terms of R&D, 
in pharmaceuticals and the, the possibilities around a vaccine, it looks like Britain might actually be quite well placed where we can see the British economy's weakness would be actually in having any manufacturing capacity around that vaccine, that the fact that we have a a weak manufacturing sector, I think has put us in a different position, say, in regard to Germany, which is the has the strongest manufacturing you know, economy in in Europe. And the disjuncture between what our scientists can do in terms of developing products and what we can then do in terms of actually producing them is ultimately a weakness of the British economy that's been quite acutely exposed, I think, by what has happened. And it's another of those weaknesses that has been there for a long time and is being really demonstrated by by the current crisis. The other question, I'm not quite sure what to make of this, is whether or not the British state is particularly shambolic compared to others. And if you look at things like how supplies are being procured, how decisions are being reached, the fact that politicians are briefing against each other on the front page of the newspapers, it looks like it's a pretty poor response. And from what you read, contrast that to a place like Sweden, where they've got the technocrats in charge. I'm a technocrat, so I love that kind of approach. But I don't really have a strong sense of whether that's a particular UK weakness or whether all countries are just being tested so much by the crisis that that everybody's got their own weaknesses and they're all coming to the fore. I think what we can see is is that different political cultures are in evidence in the way in which the politics and the political reaction of medias to what is going on you know, is playing itself out. That we still have a you know a somewhat contested politics, certainly in terms of the the media's involvement in it. But it's nowhere near, say, as bitterly partisan as it's been in the United States. We haven't had a a real, I think, crisis of um, the United Kingdom as a multinational state in terms of the ways in which the the four governments, England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, have interacted in relation to the crisis. Whereas you can see, as we've talked about in this podcast, you know, several times, you know, considerable federal state tensions in the US. I think if you make like a comparison with Germany, Germany always has a much less noisy political culture than Britain does. And you haven't seen anything like the kind of severe criticisms that have been directed at the British government, at the German government. Now, you could say that's because the German government's more competent. And I think in certain ways it is. Though, again, I think you've got to think about some differences, like the fact that the German health system is quite decentralised, the roles of the state governments there in that. But there isn't any way in which everything else about a country's politics is going to stop simply because that we're in an existential crisis of the kind that we're facing at the moment. But I am always quite suspicious of people sounding off on social media as if they know exactly what the right thing to do is in these circumstances. The pressure on people taking the decisions at the centre is immense. They're awash with different sources of information saying contradictory things. The spotlight is on them. The consequences of their decisions are enormous. And, you know, I, I don't think there is anybody who could possibly say uh, this is exactly the right thing to do. We just don't have the information that allows that. No, I'm not suggesting that we necessarily have a very healthy political culture, but I think it's also we can't expect it to change simply because we're in the kind of crisis that we are. Diane, we've often spoken to you in the past about the challenge of how we measure economic outcomes. There's a huge political fight. It's just starting and it's going to go on for months, if not years, about the long-term consequences of the decisions that have been taken, particularly the economic consequences. But then there's often 
said to be a choice between economic and health outcomes. It's not clear it is a choice. It's not even clear necessarily it's a trade-off. And of course, there's also the question of what an economic, not just slowdown, but possibly worse than that, does to people's health. Are we in any kind of position to measure this accurately? Do you have any confidence that we actually will have the data that allows us to track how we're doing as we come out of this? It's going to be extraordinarily difficult just to collect the normal economic data. You know, chunks of the economy have shut down and there are even problems about defining where you count things. Is an employee on furlough still counted as employed or as unemployed? So some of those decisions need to be made. How do you assess what inflation is doing when basic products like flour are still unavailable in the shops? So just knowing what's going on is more difficult than usual. We don't really have the granularity that we would like to be able to understand these things. One of our colleagues, Vasco Carvalho, in the economics department has done some work looking at banking transactions, but we don't have that kind of data for the UK. That would help you map what's happening to people's spending patterns and which parts of the country are most badly affected, and we don't quite have that. I love data and statistics, spend a lot of time working on it, so it would be great if one of the outcomes of this was that we had a better idea of what we really wanted to know and we set up the data collection to do that because you can't really implement good policies unless you know both what outcomes you want and you can measure yourself against against those outcomes. And this is you know completely unprecedented. The Office of Budget Responsibility said that GDP might fall by a third, which if that were sustained for any period, would take us to the same level as 1990. So a generation's worth of economic growth gone. Hopefully it will not last for very long. We'll be able to find ways to get things going again. I'm very resistant to the idea that there's a trade-off between health and the economy. People talk about the economy as if it's an abstraction or as if it's just about money, but it's also about people, people's uh, livelihoods, the health consequences of long-term stress and unemployment. But that's a very complicated calculus because there are all kinds of benefits. It's not just that the lockdown's saving lives in the pandemic, but the clean air is making people healthier because asthma will get better. So, you know, that kind of calculus is, is probably not the right way to think about it at all. Focusing on what is this going to do to people's lifetime opportunities is is the key thing. And that means a focus on people who are at the start of their careers, they're finishing their education or at the start of their careers, because one of the things that we know from previous economic research is that there's a scarring effect. If you go into the labour market at a difficult time, that affects your whole lifetime prospects. And so really focusing on making sure that doesn't happen to people who are finishing their education or starting work in the next couple of years will be absolutely key. So does that mean that one of the inequalities that is being exacerbated by this is intergenerational, that in health terms, we're all aware that this pandemic is affecting different age groups in fundamentally different ways, but so too is the lockdown affecting different age groups in fundamentally different ways. And even that, it's quite complicated, whether we think of older people as uh, secure in various ways or whether we think of them as savers who are likely to lose out. But the young on the whole, are likely to be the biggest losers in this. Is it, I mean, is it isn't fair to say that, that that's the broader picture here? I think I agree with that. Um, 
it's uh, something I'd like to look at the figures a bit more carefully about, but I think that's almost certainly true. And when you add to that that we have been depleting natural resources since the Second World War and causing climate change, that we have been underinvesting in infrastructure since the 1960s, probably. The balance sheet for younger generations looks pretty poor. So again, that takes me to a focus on what do we do to invest for their future as we come out of this, and therefore thinking about things like investing in clean energy, investing in proper broadband networks and public transport networks, and, and so on. So part of the focus of economic recovery has to be about investment for the future. I mean, I'm always, as you know, David, because we've had this conversation before, you know, a bit somewhat more sceptical than you anyway, about making the generation conflict primary here in terms of interest. But I think quite a lot of it on the generational side will play out in terms of where actually the long term damage is done to employment. And I think that at the moment it's far too soon to tell because what we've effectively done, at least in, in Britain with the the furlough scheme, is managed to keep people in their jobs, or at least many people in their jobs. So I think more than certainly significantly more than in the United States by having the state take responsibility for paying them. But that doesn't mean that when we, as we move back into or restore economic activity, that all those businesses that people in the private sector at least have been um, working in, I think are going to to come back. There is going to be considerable corporate disruption as we move further forward in, in time. I think, you know, we're going to see quite a lot of businesses thinking that there has to be more digitalization and that may involve employing significantly fewer numbers of um, people. It may be that there's going to be certain kinds of, of growth industries that come out of that as a as a consequence of it, but that other jobs are going to disappear. And I'm not sure that it's necessarily going to be the people who are young who are going to disappear from those jobs. I mean, if you look at what tends to happen when you get that kind of restructuring, it tends to be people in middle age approaching in the sort of 10 years before what would be the retirement age that end up um, losing out. So I think that until we have a better sense of like what employment prospects are going to be, as we restore economic activity, that we shouldn't generalise too much about where the generational burden is going to fall. Diane, do you think there could be a step change in those trends that we were witnessing before this happened towards automation, towards, as Helen said, digitalization of various forms of work, maybe even towards homeworking? I mean, some of this was starting, it was slow, and it was often hidden. Is this crisis possibly going to be the thing that really turbocharges that? Because that would be an economic transformation. I'm not sure I agree with that. Obviously, we're all able to work from home much more than we thought. I'm not sure that's going to substitute permanently for the face-to-face encounters. It's just very different, isn't it? The kinds of conversations that you have like this one. On, online with a the group, they're, they're different if you're not face-to-face. And so for a while, it's fine. In terms of broader automation, I think that depends on how the labour market shakes out, as Helen was just saying. And it may be that if there's high unemployment then the economic pressure, the financial pressure to automate actually recedes because labour will be cheaper than it would otherwise have been. But just to go back for a moment to the generational question, we have created a workplace where younger people are far more likely to be 
employed on short-term contracts to skip around jobs, be freelance. And we've also got a distribution of wealth and income where older people are now far less likely to be in poverty than younger people or children. And so the broader economic inequality has a, a generational aspect to it as well. And then the other point is about paying for all the debt the public sector is taking on. Some of it will be monetized, you know, it'll be not have to be paid for in taxes. But I think taxes will rise and thinking about where those taxes fall and the progressiveness of those is going to be part of that very complicated distributional and generational calculus. I just had though one thing a question on the on the digitalization. I mean it, you know, it may well be that lots of people who've been working at home think I'd rather go back to, you know, like face to face contact and working in an office and um, meetings but the hard reality is going to be that lots of the businesses that they work for are going to be in a lot of financial trouble and that if they can do things much more cheaply by not having to pay rent on expensive buildings then there's a considerable incentive for them to go to digitalization regardless of whether people feel like they would rather go back to working in offices or not and I think that the question will be what is the economic financial damage including via corporate debt to businesses um, prospects and how are they then going to react to it talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the london review of books selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage shopify is there to help you grow shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with shopify Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Diane, when you said that um, if this is a economic collapse on the scale that some people are predicting, it's like going back a generation. Um, we're wiping out a generation worth of economic growth. We don't know what will happen. No one knows what shape the recovery will be. There are all these letters, V, U, W, probably some others too. L. L, yeah, that's not a good one, right? No, that's not a good one. Um, So if it was rapid, which is possible, do we have evidence, historical evidence, of the kind of mistakes that policymakers could fall into in times of really rapid recovery? Um, I mean, there are circumstances after a disaster, a war or whatever, where economic growth resumes at a breakneck pace. There are these long-term challenges, and you've talked about them, various forms of investment we need to make to rectify some of the inequalities that we currently are seeing exposed. Do we know much about how policymakers should think if the economy does come roaring back? Are there warning signs there, things that we should try and avoid? I haven't seen any real discussion of that. You know, people say, well, if it's you know, if it's V-shaped, that's kind of good, right? But if it is V-shaped, that's also, if a generation of growth comes roaring back, presumably we could get that wrong as well. I suppose you might look to parallels like the Weimar period, which was, you know, lots of innovation, quite exciting in many ways, uh, bounced back from the First World War in the early 20s. But it was unsustainable. I'd also look back to the financial crisis, actually. One of the things that struck me 
in the years 2009, 2010 and so on, was how little changed after a crisis that almost brought the world economy grinding to a halt because all the financial system stopped working. And we were a few hours away from not being able to get money out of cash machines or pay in supermarkets and petrol stations. There was a lot of, you know, commissions and inquiries about what had happened and lengthy debates about raising banks' capital requirements and so on. And then when all of that had cleared a few years later, pretty much nothing had changed and the banks carried on as they had before. You know, I think the vulnerabilities of the financial system are really uh, almost as great as they had been going into the, the financial crisis. So I think the mistake would be to carry on as if nothing had changed. We really ought to be taking the opportunity of this incredible halt in activity to think about the long term and what kind of economy do we want to shape? And, you know, if we're rebuilding things, let's build them in the right direction. Helen, do you think that there's a way in which it's possible in a crisis like this to take the long view if and when we come roaring back? I mean, the, the danger, it seems to me, is that we are just going to be, you know, for all the reasons that Diane has told us about in the past, falling back on conventional economic measures and being reassured by rapid growth, you know, GDP figures looking much, much better. But presumably that's the moment at which we should be taking the long-term decisions. Yeah, I think this is hard to, again, I know I keep saying that things are hard to think about, but the difficulty, in a, I think, in any assumption that there's a scenario in which that there's sort of rapid compensating economic growth is that we are clearly going to absorb another essential geopolitical shock. I mean, it's true that it was one that was already beginning to take shape, and that's in regard to China, and that we are going to do something in Western economies that is going to be extremely disruptive to the Chinese economy because we are going to retreat from these globalised supply chains that heavily involve China that Dan was talking about earlier. And if we go back to what happened after 2008, there are two ways you can think about the world economy such as it did getting going again. The first is by what the Federal Reserve did and the second was the massive credit stimulus that China provided to the world economy and in some ways continued to provide for the the decade after um, 2008. So we've had a a recovery such as it was and it was deeply flawed recovery from the last crash that was significantly China dependent and we're going to try to recover from this one in a way that's going to involve disengagement from China and I, I just can't see any any possibility really that that at least partial disengagement isn't going to happen. So I think that that makes it, it's very hard both to think about what the outcomes might be in themselves, but also to try and really to try and find some kind of historical comparison to work with. So if I put myself in the uncharacteristic position of trying to find the bright side here, is it possible that withdrawing from these global supply chains, putting a greater emphasis on local forms of manufacturing and even of forms of self-sufficiency is the thing that will force national governments to think more long-term. I mean, that there was a temptation to rely on, for want of a better word, globalisation to get national governments out of that necessity to plan on a generational scale. And that if that if we retreat, that does open up that political possibility. I think that that is correct. And that with this, 
inevitably comes deep domestic economic and political change and we're going to see a, a politics in which who the producers are and what they produce and ensuring that they have sufficiently high prices in order to be able to produce those goods is going to be very much more important than it than it has been so if you if you like to be a bit simplistic about it if, if globalization was an age in which the consumer interests sort of prevail this is going to be more of an age in which producer interests are going to prevail I mean, that is oversimplifying but there's something i think to it and that may mean that it's going to be somewhat more inflationary than what we were um, used to but it also does allow for i think a different long-term economic approach to a, a number of questions that have caused us considerable political difficulties over the last couple of decades. I suppose if you want to be optimistic, you would think about who the key workers are, as we have discovered during this crisis, the carers, the nurses and doctors, the, the binmen, the people fixing the cabinets with the communications cables in it. You know, it adds up to quite a large share of the workforce. They've been underappreciated previously there are I don't know if you've had a chance to see them on your daily walks for exercise but there are billboards gone up that the government's put up saying thank you to the NHS staff and thank you to our caring staff we really value what we do and I found them rather dystopian or Orwellian actually because we know that 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 care and appreciation is covered love in a, in a sense it's only it's only recently been discovered so that might be a really good outcome and a lot of our economies are not manufacturing things they are services that that we provide each other of that kind and are we in any position to put a uh, value on them in how we measure economic activity i mean to go back to that question if we're discovering just how dependent we are on some things that were relatively invisible to us as forms of economic activity including let's just call it care are we likely to come out of this better able to put a value on that? I think we're really, really bad at valuing that. And so I spend quite a lot of time thinking about what would an alternative framework um, to GDP, which fundamentally tries to measure the market value of transactions, prices paid and quantities. And I don't think we have a good sense of that yet, or even a good sense of what it's really been like for a lot of people in the past 10 or 20 years. I was just doing some calculations, looking at how many hours people on median earnings had to work to buy certain goods and services, comparing 1990 to the present. And it wasn't what I expected. I expected almost everything to have become much cheaper in terms of labour time. And actually, a few things had. Uh, the kind of consumer electronics we import from China very much cheaper in terms of the number of hours you have to work to buy them. But almost everything else, even loaves of bread, is more expensive in terms of labour time. So in that very different economic welfare metric, how hard you have to work to get something that economic historians use to look at long periods of time, actually, it may be that we're not nearly as well off as we think we are. One thing that we are going to to end up facing is, is that this isn't just about people who work in the care um, sector this is also about people who carried on working who you know like work in shops who ensure that we still have you know like water electricity and and gas come and collect the bins as you said it is actually a part of the productive side of the economy that we are going to have to recognize 
have basically been the people who haven't been the beneficiaries of globalization and have now kept going effectively, allowing the people who have been to stay at home. And I think that is going to have profound political consequences too. So I'm going to ask a question as someone who does not fully understand economics um, in the hope that you can answer it. And it comes out of something, Helen, you said a few days ago. So Diane, if it's true that some things were getting cheaper, even in t- measured in labour terms rather than just in straightforward monetary terms like these electronic goods coming from China, but then as Helen says, those are some of the supply chains and some of the forms of economic activity that might become harder in this new world. We've taken on all of this debt, one way that governments deal with having too much debt, particularly governments that control their own currency, is to inflate. Valuing what producers do can also lead to inflation because we need to make sure that they can sell what they produce at a rate that makes it profitable. And yet, Helen, you said that the bond markets are assuming looking 10 years ahead, looking 30 years ahead, that we're not entering an inflationary world. This is still a deflationary world. So I don't understand that. There seem to be so many things that in the long term are pointing towards the possibility of inflation rather than deflation. What am I missing? Well, I think that it, it's more complicated, perhaps, than I was uh, suggesting the other day. And I'm sure it's more complicated than I'm <laughs> suggesting. And uh, in fact, I think I've got an unanswered email from somebody explaining to me why I wasn't quite right about this, which I do to that uh, listener intend to reply to. Well, um, reply now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think there were several different things going on. Is is like you can look at what perceptions are in the you know in financial markets and like what the long term borrowing costs for governments are and they are not at the moment taken at face value suggesting panic about what the future prospects of inflation but I still think that there are reasons to think that on balance there is an inflationary risk now that doesn't mean at least in the medium term that that doesn't mean that there aren't reasons to think that that won't be um, realized because it could be that this economic period that we're going to enter is so deflationary that it's just actually harder to get out of than we we can contemplate um, at the moment. But I think for one of the reasons that you've already said, if we move away from these supply chains, that is going to mean certain goods are going to be more expensive than they have been. And if we are basically entering an economic world in which there is a an ongoing significant risk of of shutdown or at least partial shutdown again and people have a a mindset that they have to basically psychologically prepare for the future including perhaps by stockpiling food supplies it's not difficult to see how you get into a situation in which basically people are bidding up the price of certain food goods and that obviously is inherently uh, inflationary so i think there are so many different moving parts at the moment still that it's quite difficult to see where the balance of the risks lie but it is one possibility i think that we are entering into that we will enter into a more inflationary world having said that as i say i'm hesitating because i i think that we should be prepared actually for the fact that it's pretty hard to get out of the economic situation in which that we've got ourselves and that we might be locked more into a, a deflationary position I think over the longer term, inflation is very likely. And, you know, financial markets have distinguished themselves by not being particularly forward looking. In short term, some prices will go up and um, because of the recession or 
downturn, some will go down. But longer term, every government is borrowing an awful lot of money. And unless we find that the Martians are going to lend it to us, that debt burden has to be dealt with. And I think inflation is, as part of the running down the real burden of debt is quite a likely outcome in the medium term. And Helen mentioned what probably is the likeliest scenario. So it's not V or U or L, but in some respects, it's kind of W-ish. I mean, there's going to be an up and down element to this. There's going to be an in and out element to it. The, the evidence of the last few days, as far as people know, that maybe um, the pandemic is not as widespread in populations as people thought. This emphasis on asymptomatic carriers may have been overdone. You know, it's possible that even in places like Singapore that we're seeing, you know, the disease can come back very, very quickly. That presumably also puts a very different flavour on thinking about the medium term, a world in which it's not, we lock down, we open up, but psychologically, economically, businesses, consumers, producers have to think about a kind of back and forth aspect of this. And everyone will get perhaps in the habit of thinking, you know, just because it's like this now doesn't mean it'll be like this in six months time. That That is completely different from anything that we've known in our lifetimes, presumably. It is. And when you have something that's that long lasting, then the way businesses invest, the way people work, the way people behave, that will, that will change. People will adjust to that. And I, so I think as Helen was just saying, it becomes incredibly hard to foresee how that will play out exactly. I think there is certain comparison with the energy crisis in the in the 70s, which sort of goes on for pretty much the decade and very into the very beginning of the of the early 80s in a kind of stop go economic cycle and that it does change people's psychology it lends an if you like an overall pessimism to animal sentiments use that language in the 1970s um economy but i think that we do have to think quite hard and seriously about even in the short term so as you know restrictions start to be lifted about whether people are actually going to go back to doing things that generate economic demand are they going to go back to going out and spending money even when they have the opportunity to are they going to decide that their savings levels need to be higher because they now think that there's a more significant risk of them not being employed in six months time or if a psychology of fear sets in then that is going to make the even the first economic recovery more difficult than it would otherwise be. I think you're right, people might decide to save more. That over a period might be no bad thing if it means there are more funds available for investment and the banks actually do lend some of the money to businesses. But people will also just change the things that they spend money on. It might not be going down the pub on a Saturday night, but it would be paying for craft supplies so that you can do your weaving at home or whatever alternative you find. Diana, at the beginning, I touched in a slightly joking way on the productivity question, which is something that has bedeviled long-term thinking for a long time, and people are searching for both an explanation and a solution to, in the British case, but in other places too, why we're less productive than we used to be. Is there anything in this crisis that could either provide an answer to the puzzle, that is, help us understand better productivity, or indeed generate more of it? Was I asking too much? I think it might just make us think harder about what we mean by productivity in an economy where four-fifths of activity is, is services. And it's impossible 
to think about productivity when there's no product. If you think about those nurses in the ICUs at the moment, they're probably in a numerical sense becoming less productive because more medical staff are having to spend more time per patient because they're treating this very serious illness. But is that really the way that you want to think about productivity in healthcare, that you get more patient throughput per nurse, which is sort of how we think about it at the moment? I think we've just got to reframe the way that we think about um, what is a productive economy and what does economic progress mean? And this crisis is raising some very profound questions. I'm going to give you a hypothetical that you can reject because it's so ridiculous. But uh, so we're meant to believe that Boris Johnson could have been changed. I think most people would have been affected and possibly at some level changed by a near-death experience that he had. And he came out of his couple of days in ICU talking about the amazing work being done by the nurses, naming them, saying that they saved his life, as well as a lot of people called Nick. And then he gave this speech, which and I think almost everyone who heard it was struck by the, the peroration, the last couple of lines, when he said of the NHS, that not only is it the beating heart of our nation, but that it's powered by love. And you don't often hear prime ministers talking about love in that way. So if he called you in, and said, okay, help me put a value on love, That's uh, this thing that's powering the NHS, help me put a value on these things that I discover are, in some ways, the engine of what we do, what would you tell him? Um, Apart from being surprised, I think, <laughs> <he'd> be <laughs> summoned. Apart from being surprised and somewhat sceptical. Um, oh, you didn't believe him uh, about love? Uh, or his, uh, his conversion to the cause of love as an economic measure? I don't know that people's characters fundamentally change, um, even after profound experiences like that. But what do I know about it? Maybe I'm being unfair. I, I think it's um, a question of thinking about society and not the individual. You know, we've had the whole period of what people like to call neoliberalism, the emphasis on the individual. Economics is all about individual choice. For many reasons, it's partly the experience that we're going through now and the NHS, also partly what digital technology is like and the characteristics of the digital economy. We need to think about how we affect each other and what is it about our activities that is making us better off as a whole and not just as individuals. And he did also say, I think before he got sick, that Mrs Thatcher hadn't quite nailed it when she said there was no such thing as society. No, well, she was wrong then and she's still wrong. Helen, do you think there's a possibility that um, this government might look at things differently, fundamental things differently? Or do people and governments not really change? No, I think that they are. And I, th I think that they will change because there isn't any possibility of going back to the way the world was in quite a number of ways. So ultimately, any politician, any government, regardless of what country they are in, that doesn't do some adjustment in relation to where they were going before this is going to find themselves in very considerable political difficulty. And I think that in terms of British politics, that you can already see that it isn't just a question of the domestic politics around the NHS that might change. Uh, there may also be now a, a political space to deal with social care in the way it wasn't previously the case. But I think that, you know, the, the, 
British position has been, perhaps you know, in terms of Western countries, stronger than anywhere else in some respects, at least over a 20, 30, 30 year period, is to have a very internationalized economy. We were for quite some time, perhaps a little bit less so in recent years since Cameron's gone, but not that much so, pretty gung ho about a very positive economic relationship with China. It wasn't that long, you know, that Xi Jinping was being given, you know, like a carriage ride down the Mao and um, Cameron and Osborne were talking about a golden age of British-China relations. And I think that's that's all over. It, it isn't going to be like that. I guess for me, one of the signs that things have really changed was the way the banks, um, with only minimal bullying from the Bank of England, agreed to suspend their dividend payments. And when you contrast that with the fuss they made about not paying themselves large bonuses after the financial crisis, um, I think that's a sign that if even the bankers realise that things have changed, then maybe, maybe they really have. As always, you can find links to Diane's work in our show notes and on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. We're hoping to catch up again with Lucia Rubinelli this weekend to get the view from Italy quite a while on since we last spoke to her. And next week, we're going to be talking in more detail about the politics and the science of the pandemic. Next week also, we're launching our new series, Talking Politics, History of Ideas, in which I'll be discussing the political books that shape the modern world. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. I have to say is, is I've discovered that the position that we do this is not great for neck my neck. Never mind. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Can't you move the laptop, Helen? Yeah, this is just getting things at the right <laughs> angle so that you'd you, think. You, you you'd think. You wouldn't believe though, cushions, pillows, the different combinations <laughs> that I've had of like which room to Pulleys, be in. Winches. Music, lawnmowers, industrial lawnmowers. Yeah. We've had such fun over the last few weeks, though, and you've missed a real treat of a party. <laughs>